Oh, family get together. Okay, yeah. Well, wonderful. Glad you guys could all come together. So, so nice when families get together. Glad you could be at our church service, too. We welcome you. And we uh, are also continuing to pray for our youth as they go to this week-long challenge. It's called Challenge. And they do a lot of things for the youth there. They get involved in so many different activities, and they build relationships with each other, with their leaders, and with youth from across the nation. So we'll be keeping those in prayer. But let's go ahead and pray right now before we look into God's Word. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Tony and Rosie and their family, and we're thankful they could be here. We're thankful that they know you and they follow you. And Father, we uh, pray for those going and driving now to Kansas City. Pray that you keep them safe and give them a wonderful week. And Lord, now as we look into your word, may you open our eyes to your truths and may they make a difference in our lives as we go out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Now this morning, I want to talk about two different pathways that two different groups of people had chosen. And both pathways include the elements of death and freedom. And the first pathway is the one our nation's founding fathers chose when they started out, when they came out to start a new nation. They were seeking political freedom, of course. But they knew that the big risk, there was a high risk of death in their seeking this freedom, where death and freedom meet. They knew, of course, that Great Britain would not just kind of let them go and have their own country. And on paper, those coming over, the colonials, the colonists, you know, they had no chance of winning this battle against the British military. They were one of the, well, some people say they were the top power of the world at that time, militarily. And as far as warships even, just in that category, the British <clears throat> had 270 warships in the American waters at that time, and the colonists had seven. And the British were a military world power. While the colonists were living in 13 separate colonies and they didn't have means of communication, very good means of communication, they had just come over. And one historian put it this way. He said, the colonial army was undermanned, under-equipped, under-funded, under-trained, and inexperienced. What they had going for them was heart. <laughs> they came for a strong reason, because they wanted a nation that was going to reflect the values that they had, and they were coming away from a nation that really didn't. So, <clears throat> if you ever watch football on Sunday, and you see the pregame show, where you have these five experts sitting in, on a panel, and they're talking about the game and the stats, and they're talking about everybody. <clears throat> And then at the end of the, the talk, each one gives who they think is going to win the game. After all they've said about you know, the different talents and the different 
strategies and that sort of thing. And if you would have had that during this time when America was going to face Great Britain, every commentator would have checked the box that said Great Britain was going to win. Because they asked them at the end of the show, they say, okay, who's going to win? Nobody would check the mark for the American colonists. They were just too outnumbered, too outtrained, too outresourced. But here are two reasons that people give why the Americans were able to, to win that battle. One was the dream that the leaders had. <clears throat> the dream that became the Declaration of Independence. They were totally committed to their dream. They were passionate, they were dedicated, they were tenacious, and they were willing to sacrifice everything. And the second one may surprise you, the other reason, because it had to do with those outside the leadership circle. And there were two Bible preachers that during that period of time just poured themselves out reaching the colonists, preaching to them night and day, powerfully bringing the word of God to them across this fledgling nation that weren't really well that connected to each other. And now we call that the Great Awakening. So many people got saved during that time. And that's when you had Jonathan Edwards, who worked night and day, you know, working up sermons to get the word of God out to the people. And he was known for reaching people's hearts through his sermons, powerful sermons. They convinced people to turn and follow the Lord. At that time, there were a lot of people there that claimed to be Christians that had come over, but you know, it was more in their head than in their hearts. And Jonathan Edwards would preach these sermons and people would be crying and and turning their hearts over to the Lord, getting right with God. Great conviction coming upon these settlers. Hearts and minds were being changed as bars and taverns and brothels were closing down because people quit going to them. I don't know, maybe the, maybe the owners got saved. Not sure. <clears throat> but that was Jonathan Edwards. And then there's also George Whitfield. George Whitfield was known for his powerful, booming voice. And he would hold these outdoor meetings. And he would preach to lots and lots, thousands of people at a time. And Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian, but he was the one who always did all the math for everything. <clears throat> he couldn't believe how far, you know, uh, George Whitfield's voice would carry and so he was trying to do the math to find out how many people he could hear him at one time. And according to his calculations, he said that, where was the number? Oh, he, he said that his sermons could reach 30,000 people. There was a million and a half people that came over and they were in the colonies. And he would go around to the 13 colonies. He says he went around to them at least seven times apiece. And he would preach these outdoor sermons. And he would reach thousands and thousands of people. And what it did was, it started, it started bringing people together. Of course, people were getting saved and they were giving their hearts to the Lord. It's estimated that Whitfield was heard by 
close to one million of the million and a half people that were here in the States. Now, historians believe that these revivals served to bring a unity to the people that they didn't have. And they stirred the people's hearts. And at that time, like I said, many people came to know the Lord in sincerity, authentic knowledge of the Lord. Many moved from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge because they, they were familiar with Christianity but not from their hearts. And a model that came out of the Great Awakening was no king but King Jesus. And the principal uh, belief that was followed was their rights did not come from a king, but their rights came from God. And so that was the basis for the revolution, wasn't it? And the government's job wasn't to try to see how long they could stay in their positions and take money from the people. The government's job was to protect the rights of the people. And the government was supposed to be for the people and of the people. And so all of that, that was the groundwork for our nation. And we saw that <clears throat> George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards played a big part in that. Now, you know, we know that these who laid the groundwork for this country, they risked their very lives for what they believed. And when they signed that Declaration of Independence, they realized that they could be signing their death warrant because they would be, you know, try to be taken out by the British. In fact, at the first signing that they did, they had only two sign it and they only signed their initials because they knew that if their names got out, you know, that they'd be, they would be chased down. Later, when they did the, the, the final signing, uh, 56, the 56 leaders who came over signed, all signed the declaration. But they signed it with the acknowledgement that it could be the very thing that led to their deaths. So they were committed. <clears throat> They chose the pathway with the high risk of death in order to find freedom. Now there's another group of people who chose a pathway of death leading to freedom. And we see it in Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul is explaining to these young Christian converts, well, they're, they're Christian converts that were young in the faith, He's explaining to them, these new Christians, <clears throat> who were not brought up under Christian morals, he's explaining to them now what now would be their relationship to sin, to their old life. Okay? Because when he told them that God's grace overcame their sin, some were thinking, oh, then, if his grace is greater than our sin, how about we sin more so we get more grace? You know, that weird thinking. Anyway, Paul wanted to combat that thinking in case anybody was thinking that. But if we start with verse 2 here, you know, the idea is, should we sin more so that grace increases more? God's forgiveness is, is more magnified? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? He's saying... You can't live there because you're dead in that area. You're dead to sin. 
Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. <clears throat> you know, to the lifestyles that they had been living, these Roman Christians, to the things that they had grown up in and grown up with, <clears throat> it were things like men choosing one woman to be their wife in the home, raise their children, cook their meals, you know, being that solid woman for them, family woman, and then they would go out with prostitutes for their out-of-the-home pleasure. And they would do it even in, in the temples, in the pagan temples. And so, you know, people are wondering, you, you know, it sounds kind of weird to us, but you know when you're used to doing something in, in your culture and you come to the Christ, sometimes you don't even think about, I shouldn't be doing this. And so, <clears throat> can we still... Uh, lie in business agreements? Can we still clock someone who insults us like we're used to doing? And Paul says, no. That's not the way it is anymore. And here's why he says that. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. <clears throat> you know, you see it in our culture too. A lot of times people are just used to living a certain way. And they don't always really think through, am I supposed to be doing this in my Christian life? You know, you see people in all sorts of things. Today, you know, things are very common that you didn't used to be. You know, people living together outside of marriage, all sorts of things. People used to get cheating in business. Some were wondering if they could go on living according to their old patterns. And Paul is saying, you aren't that person anymore. The person who cheated and lied and cut others down and reveled in sexual immorality, that person's dead. You came to Jesus Christ. He has nothing to do with that. You stepped out of that. You were, you were raised to a whole new life. As Christ was raised from the dead, you've been raised and he says they were baptized into Christ, which means they were baptized into his death, buried with him, and raised to new life. You know, the word baptism is a word that just came from the Greek, baptizo, and so it was just brought over into the English, almost the same thing, baptism. And it was when they would take a cloth, this is what it was used in, uh, the way it was used a lot of times, they would take a cloth, dip it into a dye, like a white cloth, dip it into a purple dye, and would come out purple. So now the cloth, you wouldn't call it white anymore, you'd call it purple. And it was baptized 
and became a whole new cloth type of thing. And that's what baptism was. Whatever you were baptized into, you were totally involved in and became that. And so if you're baptized into Christ, we become one with Christ, and his death is our death, and his life, new life, is our life. His death becomes our death through faith. And just as he was raised to new life, we now have a new spiritual standing with God because we're forgiven. So we're not to continue in our old sinful patterns or our own sinful thinking or acting. We died to that life. We are to embrace a whole new cleansed resurrection life. And the reason... For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It's where death and freedom meet. And you know, I think this is unbelievably amazing. So you have Jesus Christ, who was the eternal, sinless Son of God. And he becomes human. And then he becomes the sacrifice for our sins. And in that way, we are allowed to become a part of Christ's sacrifice through faith. I mean, he took all the punishment, the pain, the sorrow, the agony, and we just join it by faith. And when we come to him in humble faith and repentance, our old self has become one with Christ in his crucifixion. I mean, that's amazing. How can that even, how can that even be? I mean, there's some people don't even believe it because it's so good. And our body ruled by sin, you know, that is sin struck right from birth because of the human condition. That can be done away with in spiritual sense in God's book because of Christ's death on the cross. So that we are no longer slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Where death and freedom meet. Now, I said at the beginning that we look at these two groups of people who chose pathways of death and freedom. And our founding fathers chose the pathway of high risk of death in order to gain that freedom. That's how badly they wanted that freedom. And here we see that we who turn to Jesus Christ in true faith, we are joined to Christ in his death, which then frees us from our sin. And then it gets even better. In verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So anyone who is willing to join Christ in his death, and you know, it's just a decision we make, right? It's not the painful thing that Christ had to go through, but it's through repentance and faith. And anyone who is re willing to repent of their sins, realize that they are a sinner, and come to Christ in faith will also live with him. And that coming to him is, is our death. And then we get to live with him. And he says that when Christ was raised from the dead, he became totally free from the reach of death. So here's the one who went before us, our commander. And he died that death. And now he will never, ever come close to death again. It's just not a part of him. He's, he is just life. And we get to enter into that through faith. He died a death once for all, and now he lives eternally to God. So that's how solid our faith is, and that's how sure our future is if we're connected to Christ. It says when we come to him, you know, we're baptized into him. The Bible talks about, <clears throat> you know, people being baptized. People were baptized into John the Baptist. People were baptized into Moses when they crossed through the, the Red Sea. And what that means is they totally uh, identified with that person, just like the cloth is identified with the new color. They, they were totally identified with that person. The, the children of Israel were identified with Moses. And so as we come to Christ in forgiveness, you know, for in repentance of our sins, and he offers us his forgiveness, we are totally identified with him who died on the cross and who's rising to new life and never, ever touches death again. Now, how could the news in any way be better than that? I mean, we sin. We are totally forgiven for our sins. We have absolutely no way to get rid of our sins. And here's the thing when, when people... I've said this a number of times in here, but <clears throat> when you ask people if they're going to go to heaven, the first thing they think of, yeah, I think I'm good enough to go. I'm not sure I'm good enough, but I think I am. I'm better than so-and-so. That's kind of the way I used to think before I was a Christian. I'd say, well, I'm better than these neighbors over here. And that's what everybody thinks. That's a work system, isn't it? And you're just hoping that the, the way you choose is the right way, you know, like what, what standard God judges on. And then I would think at some point, you know, going to hell is pretty serious. So it's probably for people like Bonnie and Clyde and Hitler and people like that. Not us people who, who are nice, you know. But then that misses the whole point, doesn't it? Because it's forgiveness. And that's what I try to tell people when I talk to them because they're always thinking, am I good enough? And it's not good enough. You're never good enough. Your sins have to be forgiven. Your sins have to be cleansed. You can't go to heaven with sin. It has to be cleansed and wiped away. And only Christ's death on the cross can do that when we repent and turn to him in faith.
It's a matter of having our sins forgiven. And Jesus Christ did all the work. And by faith, we can be baptized into his death. And then we join him in his resurrection. That's amazing. And some people won't even accept it because they think it's just too easy. But it can't get any better than that. We sin, we stand condemned. He takes the punishment. He goes, he dies. We join him in that death. And then we can join him in his resurrection. And he can't die again. It's totally secure. He can't die. He's, he's, now he lives to God eternally. It sounds too good to be true, but it is totally true. It's where death and freedom meet. So now, what is our relationship to sin? If we've come to Christ, if we've been baptized into his death, and we've been now, you know, we are set to join in his resurrection. Now that we have been cleansed, forgiven, joined to Christ through baptism in his death and resurrection, look what it says in verses 11 through 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Under the law, we're responsible for our own sins. Under grace, Christ took on our sins. So, he's saying, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Whereas before, we were dead to grace, to God, and alive to sin no matter how good people we were. Don't allow ourselves to be tools of wickedness. You know, involving ourselves in sin, you know, for whatever reason. But live, live like those who have been brought from death to life. <clears throat> because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It's the place where death and freedom meet. Our framers were willing to face very, very high risk of death to give us freedom. And now Jesus calls us to be baptized into his death. He was willing to die a horrible, horrible, painful death to find freedom from sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love is so great that you had Christ do all the work. And we thank you, Jesus, for being willing to play that part, to do that part. We thank you for your glory and your, your suffering and your strength and your love. 
And now, Lord, may we walk in faithfulness to you, always remembering <clears throat> what it took and what you did and how, much, and how much love that you showed toward us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.